Hey everyone, welcome back to Brain Buzz. Uh, on today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Tessa Charlesworth. Uh, Tessa is a doctoral student in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, where she studies implicit bias. Uh, in this, today's episode, she defines what implicit biases and explicit biases are, how we can change our implicit biases as individuals. She also talks about how our exposure to different groups can change the way that we think and how implicit biases have actually developed and changed over time. Enjoy the episode. Friends, colleagues, and socially biased individuals, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by a member of the Mazarin Banaji Lab, doctoral candidate in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, Tessa Charlesworth. Tessa, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us, taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Uh, we learned just before uh, we started recording that today was a particular, particularly uh, meaningful day for you for many reasons. Mm. Um, do you want to just quickly share that, or is that a secret that we should keep? <laughs> no, no secret, no secret. I was texting some of my friends, so some people already know. Um, <laughs> the word is out. <laughs> the word is out, yes. So today I am submitting my dissertation to my committee. Yay! And Yay. what that also means is I wrote the what I've found to be probably the hardest piece of writing that I've ever done, which is the acknowledgement section of my dissertation. Um, and it was hard because it was emotional, but I also wanted to sound sophisticated and professional while also cracking some inside jokes and everything. So it took me like three hours to, to get two pages out, but uh, I'm happy with it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good rate. I'd be thrilled <laughs> if I was writing <laughs> be absolutely overwhelmed if I was writing at that pace. So <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. I, I Again, you kind of having that knowledge like, hey, you just finished this right. huge milestone and yeah. you've taken the time to come and chat with us is obviously yeah. really meaningful to us. So thank you for doing it. Of course. Mm -hmm. Can you lead us in and explain? We've had a couple uh, episodes on biases before, but talk to us about what implicit biases are and what work you're doing in that area. Yeah, definitely. So implicit bias has sort of become a big buzzword, both in the field of psychology and social psychology, but also in the broader sort of zeitgeist of our, our world. Um, and I, the way I like to think about it is in contrast to our explicit biases. So we all sort of have an intuition of what our explicit biases are. These are things that we were, we're able to consciously report, we can introspect on, so we basically can look into our minds and say, how biased am I against you know, people who speak with an accent or people who are overweight or people who have a mobility aid or something like that? Those are our explicit biases. If I were to go around with sort of a clipboard and ask you what you thought about those people, you would tell me. The problem is that's not the entire part of what we think about and feel about social groups and, and other people. We also have these more sort of automatic or sort of gut feelings that come up when we encounter someone who's different from us on some dimension. And those are, these more automatic feelings are our implicit attitudes or our implicit stereotypes. And they're implicit because that sort of implicit idea means that they're latent or they're sort of hidden in our mind in some way. So we might not be aware of holding them. We might not be able to introspect and find those attitudes in our mind. Or even if we are aware of them, we might not be willing to report on them. So this is often sort of where implicit bias is more commonly used in popular culture. It's this idea that, you know, deep down you may know that you're racist, but you just don't want to tell anyone. Um, and that's another sort of part of implicit bias is both the unawareness, but also the unwillingness to report your biases. 
Right. So what we do to sort of get around those things is we measure your attitudes indirectly. So traditionally, we've measured them using something called the Implicit Association Test or the IAT, which has a, you know, a buzzword in and of itself now in the popular culture. Um, and this is basically like a speeded task that you'll do on the computer where you're, you'll pair pictures with words. And we basically are able to see how closely you associate group concepts like black or white people with other kinds of concepts. So good versus bad, or maybe smart versus dumb or strong versus weak and so on and so forth. And by just using speed for you to categorize these concepts together, we're able to get more of an indirect assessment that doesn't require you to explicitly report what you're thinking or feeling. Right. So like you're looking at more or less reaction time to exactly. use these descriptive words, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and presumably, if you are responding quicker, that means that you're implicitly more biased to that that direction if it takes longer then you're, you're you're more enacting some explicit bias to kind of answer that is that yeah, kind of that's yeah that's a good way of thinking about it is like sort of the the faster you associate two concepts in mind the more they're associated in your mind right so if you're really fast to associate insects and bad things and flowers and good good things they're probably implicitly associated in your mind right. whereas if you're probably a lot slower to associate insects and good things it's even hard for me to say and flowers and bad things. So those are those are kind of the ways we're just using reaction time to see these kinds of conceptual associations in your mind. Right. So you're not a fan of bugs. That's clear. I'm not a fan of bugs. No. I've been okay. I've been trying to watch nature documentaries because I know they're important to our ecosystem and I'm trying to develop sympathy. But you know, just like they're very spiders are very, very many legs and very many eyes. And you prefer two or four, I get it. <laughs> This uh, this work, I'm I'm very I'm not super familiar with it, but I know oh. it's really important in uh, you know social psychology. It reminds me of like a study on children and, and looking at these implicit oh. biases. How early do these implicit biases start to t you know kick in? Like when can we start seeing yeah. these in uh, in humans? It's such a great question. I think we still don't know quite how early these kinds of representations emerge in our mind, but we can already start to see cues of them in infancy. So sort of cues of associating good things with people who look like us or people who talk like us actually emerge as newborns. So there's a really amazing study that looks at language-based biases. So, you know, I prefer people who speak English or French being bilingual. I'm also from Canada. So I was, you know, trained in the French immersion system. Mm -hmm. um, so I prefer people who speak those languages, whereas, you know, someone from, I don't know, somewhere in Germany would have a German preference and so on and so forth. What's shocking is that newborns, babies, are listening to these languages in the womb, right? Like we're talking to kids or, or, or babies in their womb um, all around. And so when they, when they come out, they already have a kind of preference. They prefer to listen to speakers of their native language than speakers of foreign languages. And that kind of early, early preference is some of the roots of those biases that we might see later on, on things like the IAT, for instance. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I, this is, this is probably, this has never been tested. I guarantee it. Yeah. I'm going to ask, I'm going to pose a hypothetical like a scenario here. I'm thinking of like a mother traveling. I know this is kind of mm. crazy to think now in this world that we're living in. It's been a while since people have been able to travel, but I'm thinking like, uh, you know, um, imagine a mother that has a newborn uh, yeah. is carrying a newborn or carrying a newborn <laughs> it has <laughs> pregnant a pregnant woman yeah. <laughs> um, is, is traveling to say say she's an english speaker and she goes to korea 
and mm-hmm. she, you know, she's all she's surrounded by Kore- the Korean language. Yeah. Would the baby when it's you know when the baby comes out would it have that uh implicit bias towards that language as well mm-hmm. i'm curious that's a great question i i think be really hard to test <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be pretty you'd have a pretty small sample size i'm sure <laughs> um you know the person who does this amazing work is katie kinsler and she has some really interesting studies looking at how to what extent the diversity of exposure really does matter so i'm not sure about sort of in the womb Mm-hmm. Um, like your question would pose, but we know that children who early on are exposed to a diversity of languages, so like people who are raised in French immersion schools or like are bilingual in some way, um, they have less bias just overall because mm-hmm. they have from an early age sort of thought, okay, you know, it's not just English speakers around me. There seem to be these other kinds of languages and these other kinds of people. And so when I hear another language, I'm less likely to just sort of discount it or turn away from it. Right. Um, so I do think that, you know, it would be a really cool study to to, <laughs> to run with sort of traveling moms um, yeah. <laughs> and see what's going on. But I, I certainly, once they're out, once they're children and walking around in the world and being exposed to their culture, exposure really matters. Like the diversity of exposure really does leave an imprint on the mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that line of work is always kind of spurred by, you know, moms watching different languages, even though they don't speak it, right? While they're pregnant, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to put on French, even though I don't speak French, just so my yeah. baby can hear it, right? Like, yeah. uh, that makes sense to me in that kind of, you know, not necessarily a myth, I guess it is kind mm-hmm. of based in, you know, some some logic there, but uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, your work isn't specifically on children, though. So let's kind of get into what you are looking at with an implicit biases. Mm-hmm. And, you've, and you've looked at how it can change over time. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And I, some of that is actually looking at kids. So change shows up in many different ways, right? We can change as individual people. I can provide a particularly persuasive argument and change your mind about, I don't know, facts about bugs or something like that. Um, <laughs> we can also change as a culture. So over just the span of history and sort of the gradual unfolding of our society, we can change. Um, but we can also change across development. So kids don't come out of the womb in, in the except in the case of language, they don't come out in the womb preferring a certain race or preferring a certain gender. It's really like over their lifespan that they they learn these biases from their culture. So those are all three different ways that we can change and three different ways that we can change our implicit biases. And my work is actually trying to look at all three in different papers. (laughs) But certainly the the majority of my work um, has focused on this second type of change that I mentioned, which is the societal change. So over the course of history, how have our implicit biases changed? How do you get at that when obviously you can't go back and ask, you know, somebody from the Victorian era, mm. well, unless they're really old, I suppose. But <laughs> A 300-year-old <laughs> subject. Yeah, yeah, very unlikely. But how, yeah. how, how do you actually go back and analyze or, or extract data to help you answer those kinds of questions? So it's, I love that you asked that question because a year ago, maybe two years ago, I would have had a simple answer, which is we use archival data of surveys or IATs that people collected, and then we sort of just track the results over time. I do want to, I'm going to talk about that first, but I'm super excited to also talk about a new method that we're developing and others have been developing as well, that we actually could go back to the Victorian era and start to uncover some of the biases that were embedded in that culture as well and quantify them over time. So it's not entirely unheard of that we might be able to get that like quote unquote 300 year old participant in our study. Um, 
So first, first way we've done it, and sort of the most intuitive way, is by looking at these archival data sets. So what that means is back in 2000, basically, my advisor, Mazarin Banaji, her advisor, Tony Greenwald, and their student, Brian Nosek, decided that they should put up this test, the IAT, online somewhere into some sort of you know, online repository. And this, this was pretty prescient because it was still when like the internet was very clunky and people called it the World Wide Web and things like that. Um, <laughs> So they put these IATs up online, uh, sort of in the early 2000s. And since then, we've been collecting data on people's implicit attitudes towards multiple social groups. So biases about body weight, about disability, about race, about sexual orientation, and so on. And what we've done in some of our first papers is to really make use of that expansive data set and using different kinds of techniques. We've, we've cleaned the data, we've prepared the data in a way that we can control for how people are changing, like sample changes over time and all those things. And then we can trace the trajectories of attitudes at a really like fine-grained temporal scale from the 2000s all the way through to now. So cool. that's like method one. Right. And what we've found there, just to give like a, a the highest level overview, is we looked first at six different attitudes. We looked at attitudes about many of the ones that I already mentioned. So body weight, disability, age, uh, skin tone, sexual orientation, and race. And what we found is contrary to this previous notion that like implicit biases are these habits, you know, they're really deep down hidden inside our mind, so they just can't be changed. Contrary to that idea, we actually found that over the long term, implicit attitudes about race, sexual orientation, and skin tone have all decreased towards neutrality. So we're becoming less biased on those dimensions. In well, contrast, news, right? it's great news. It's great news. And it's really promising, especially because of this notion that like implicit bias shouldn't change. And especially because, you know, we we're seeing persistent discrimination on the dimensions of all of these social groups. And so the hope is that if our implicit biases are changing, as well as our explicit biases, then maybe someday soon, hopefully those kinds of changes in our attitudes will also trickle into changing our more structural level and individual level behaviors. So there's a hope that, yeah, it's, there's really a promise that perhaps this, this justice might come soon. Right. All those groups that you just talked about yeah. are basically uh, groups that can be, um, you know, there can be a lot of prejudice towards them. Mm -hmm. They can be treated differently because of these biases. Are implicit biases driving pretty much every um, ism that there is out there, mm. if that makes sense. You know, like yeah. I'm thinking of ageism, racism, ableism, all these things that you're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, is it because of people's implicit biases and, and is having a larger implicit bias always bad? Mm. Two questions in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, this feels a little bit like a recent job talk I gave where people's questions had like 18 parts and I had to keep track of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, this is much friendlier. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, so the first question is how do implicit biases or implicit attitudes correlate with or predict behavior? Yeah. And this is a super rich area of work that uh, my friend and colleague Benedict Curdy recently published a big meta-analysis on that basically showed when we do the right kinds of studies, when we're really careful in our science, we get a correlation of about 0.4. So it's not huge, but it's also not insignificant, right? Like we, we have clear evidence that implicit biases at the individual level are relating to our behaviors. And what's, what's even more surprising and compelling to me is, especially because my work is mostly situated at this level of like, how is society changing? How is history changing? There's a, also a huge uh, number of new studies that are looking at the correlations between 
IET scores or implicit attitude scores and behaviors that are aggregated across society. So these are behaviors like uh, the police use of lethal force against Black Americans or, you know, birth differences, the Black-white gap in birth weight or like school suspension differences between Black and white children, those kinds of aggregated social behaviors. And there, once we start to aggregate behaviors and aggregate IET scores, we get correlations on the order of like 0 0.7, 0 0.8. Like these are moving into the range of large effect sizes. And so I think there's both evidence for implicit attitudes playing a role in individual behavior, like whether I choose to hire or not hire a female candidate for a science job, for instance, there's, there's a role for implicit attitudes there. But there's also, and perhaps even more crucially, a role for implicit attitudes in predicting these like really consequential societal behaviors or societal outcomes. Right, absolutely. So that's part one, mm -hmm. <laughs> or answer to part one. <laughs> implicit attitudes play a role in behavior. Um, it's obviously not the whole story. Like there's other things that go into driving our behaviors as well. Um, yeah. Part two, are there any good implicit biases or are there any good reasons to have implicit attitudes? I think, I think yes. And I think this shows up mostly in sort of self-confidence or like self-esteem is a measure. It can be measured through implicit attitudes or implicit measures. Um, you know, we can have a preference for ourself and for our social, our own social group. And as long as it's moderate, like very, very moderate or small, but it's just a slight preference that basically shows, look, I recognize that my group is kind. I recognize that my group is good. I recognize that I'm familiar with my group. I'm able to trust my group, all of those things. You know, that's not necessarily harmful. What's harmful is when we also have a negative antipathy towards the other group. Um, and when we think because my group is good, the other group must be bad. Right. And especially when that shows up at like a really, really high magnitude. So when we get, you know, some people are scoring at the upper echelons of having implicit attitudes and like there we don't have any evidence that that's a good thing to have. Like being implicitly strongly biased against a certain group. I just don't see that as being helpful in any way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I wonder, going back to what we were talking about, about bugs off the top, <laughs> like that's an implicit bias that probably yeah. has some form of evolutionary history that has mm -hmm. been meaningfully important, right? Like, is yeah. that a fair categorization of it? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so I think, I think it's easy to see then, like, yeah, we don't like bugs because of X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. Z. Um, <laughs> why did I say Z? I'm trying to placate our American <laughs> listeners. Um, but, you know, there could be there could be reasons for it that are sort of evolutionarily rooted um, that could be yeah. could be important. No, I, I think thanks for sharing that, because I think that's 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 a really good good insight that I wouldn't have necessarily made on my own. So thanks. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to, to continue with the onslaught of questions, Tessa, yes. um, <laughs> what um, are there people that are more likely to carry implicit biases like mm. are there defining factors in an individual where you can be like okay because they, they're high in this this or this uh i would expect they'd be more biased towards certain groups there are some demographic differences so what i mean by that is like there are political differences in sort of the magnitude of bias that we see um against certain groups um but those aren't always consistent. So for instance, we find that in American data, political conservatives are much more biased, are much more pro-straight, anti-gay than political liberals, for instance, on implicit and explicit measures. 
Whereas there's not much of, not nearly as much of a political difference about age. So political liberals and political conservatives are pretty closely matched in terms of how much they prefer young versus older people. So it's not, there are like for any individual topic, there are some demographic differences, but it's not always there. Um, but I think, again, pointing to this idea of like situations and implicit biases as being embedded in our context or embedded in our culture, embedded in our situations, there are some features of situations that predict more implicit bias. And there was a really shocking paper um, that came out last year from Keith Payne, who's a professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that I think the, the paper was titled something like the, the legacy of, or the historical roots of implicit bias. And what they did is they looked at maps of the historical rates of slavery in the United States. So they found basically the, the counties that had the highest number of previously enslaved peoples in the 1800s. And then they took their map of IAT scores across those same counties in 2018. And what they found is that those historical roots of slavery predicted the current rates of IAT scores. And so what that's telling us is like there's some sort of manifestation of places that were, you know, previously had histories of slavery, which now have, you know, Confederate monuments, and they now have greater residential segregation and all of these other sort of structural features that have persisted since the 1800s. Those are the kinds of situations that will give rise to higher anti-Black, pro-white bias. Right. Wow. That's I know. Such a cool paper. <laughs> that's a really, really cool paper. I, I, yeah. I'm... I'm kind of interested in, uh, you talked about sexual orientation as an, yeah. an example, and I think that's a really beautiful uh, example to go into for the, my next question is um, when you're talking about implicit biases and, you know, and talking about, you know, maybe generational, like Im implicit bias, where it's, you know, it's, it's handed down through mm. your family members and your experiences when it comes to exposure uh, of other groups, you know, different, different individuals, is that what kind of can lead to, changes or does that necessarily like cause change i think of an yeah. example for um you know take a conservative family uh, in america or north america um that generally have anti-gay views or opinions or biases uh, and then one of their children is a part of the lgbtqia2s plus community uh and and they already have established a good bond with them does would they be more likely to you know change their implicit biases or is that less like are they like just you know more likely to have strife because of that such a great question i love that you asked that um yes so the the short answer is the first point that you mentioned which is they're more likely to change so we know that sexual orientation is really unique especially in the set of attitudes that we're looking at because it's the only one that has a concealable identity and what I mean by that is like you can meet someone and not know their sexual orientation until you've already formed a positive relationship. You've already formed a friendship, you know, you know, whether they like bugs or not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas that's not the case for something like weight or age or race, right? That's written on our bodies. So with sexual orientation, what's so cool about that is we think that that unique feature of concealability has been really important in shifting individual people's minds. And we have like a whole bunch of anecdotal examples of this, of people like the Senator Rob Portman in the United States, who was a senator who actively voted and like made lobbies and laws against gay rights. And then his own son came out as gay and he came out and reversed all of those decisions. You know, like he changed not only his attitudes, but he changed his behaviors as well. Mm -hmm. And that we see is more often the case um, when people have formed these positive relationships with friendships. So I think 
that is definitely one of the reasons why sexual orientation is changing faster than any of the other or attitudes about sexual orientation are changing faster than any of the others that we're looking at. Another reason, though, is that that, you know, that formation of friendships and positive experiences and exposures is accumulating over time alongside a lot of focus of, you know, same gender marriage legislation, gay rights, pride marches, all of these things that societal prioritization alongside the individual experiences of positive relationships, I think together form this kind of snowballing effect of change that we're seeing in, in sexuality attitudes. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. I really like the idea of this kind of concealed identity because I can see mm -hmm. that playing a role in a lot of other areas, specifically, you know, you know, racism, gender orientation is also a unique one. Um, yeah because of you know the ambiguity of that and you know different transitional stages for individuals that maybe identify as transgender mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of you know variability within that whereas you, as you said the concealed identity with sexual orientation you can have individuals that are implicitly biased for their whole lives mm -hmm. um and you know be create these really close bonds with individuals and never breach the conversation of sexual orientation because it wasn't necessary yeah and then it becomes knowledge and they're like, well, I can't, I can't hate all of these people because I've, exactly. I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I love this person or I'm, I'm close to this person now. Yeah. And they're then really, our old really friend, neat. yeah, exactly. Our old friend cognitive dissonance kicks in and it's like, yes. how do I, how am I <laughs> going to love this person and also hate that group? And either you just sit in that discomfort, but we know that people really don't like to sit in discomfort. So you usually resolve it and usually in the favor of preferring that group, like changing your attitude about the group rather than changing your attitude about a person. Mm -hmm. Maybe it starts with, you know, an exception for, you know, you're the yeah. exception to the rule and then it slowly just kind of uh, eventually dissipates, right? That's right. Exactly. Really cool. Yeah. So, so these positive experiences can have significant change. Does mm -hmm. negative experiences with other groups increase implicit bias? Presumably, this is, yeah. A, yeah, I would assume so. I mean, we have some experimental evidence of that, um, that it's, you know, it's not quite as compelling, but basically if we tell you about a certain person, let's call him Bob, I think it, in the studies, his name is actually Bob. Um, and we, you know, tell you that he ran into uh, a house and he destroyed the house and he, you know, was stomping on a whole bunch of, you know, he broke in through the windows and he was stomping on a whole bunch of, your, your favorite toys and he went up to your bedroom and he stole precious items from your bedroom and all those things. We can see that that kind of negative narrative about a certain person creates this really negative implicit bias against Bob. Like you really don't like him explicitly and implicitly. He's a bit of an asshole. Yeah. He's a bit of an asshole. <laughs> What's really interesting though is that so this is work by my friend and colleague Tom Mann uh, and what's really interesting from his work is that we can change those initial impressions by telling you one thing, which is by just telling you that Bob was the reason why Bob broke into that house was smashing your toys, went up and stole precious items from the bedroom was because your house was on fire and he was running through and trying to stomp out the fire. He ran up to your bedroom, your kids were in the bedroom and he took your kids, your precious items out of the bedroom and brought them to safety. And what's really cool is we can see a flip in your implicit and explicit attitudes by having you reinterpret the narrative that you heard early on. And it's similar in the sense of like your early negative experience with someone can, with sort of this, this new revealing positive information, also be flipped for the better. Right on. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I think that's really interesting that it, it shows sort of the malleable aspect of it, right? Yeah, like it can make exactly. a change. Yeah. So I, I think this is a perfect point to go back because you really intrigued me when you said that there's a way that we can go back mm-hmm. and measure these biases over time. And yeah. you, you alluded to this idea that we can go back and see what the Victorian individual is thinking. So, yeah. so I, knowing that we can change over time and mm-hmm. the context is important, how do you go about studying that over human lifespans, plural? Yeah, definitely. So what's been really cool is the intersections of the fields between psychological science and computer science. And at that intersection has emerged this field of sort of using natural language processing, which are like really fancy machine learning and computer science techniques applied to texts, like books and newspapers and all those things, to study social attitudes and to study social stereotypes. So again, another paper that I just totally nerd out about uh, was a paper by Eileen Kaliskan that was published in Science maybe in 2016, I think. And what she showed is that we can use these natural language processing methods and basically look at texts of like 800 billion words and look at the geometry of words in those texts. So we basically look at are the words like woman and science closer together in space than the words like women and arts, for instance, or is probably the reverse true, right? Women is probably closer to art than women is closer to science. Mm-hmm. And we can also do things like look at how, how close is black American to bad versus good or white American to bad versus good and so on and so forth. And by doing that, we can basically extract out from this language, the social associations that are going on, the social representations that are going on in our language. And she showed that we can use that method and directly replicate the results that we had on the IAT. So she found that, you know, we have these results that, you know, older people are associated with bad and younger people are associated with good and and all of the other biases that we've talked about, those are also present in our 800 billion words of natural language from today. So that alone is like super exciting and super shocking because it just opens up like this whole, like the best kind of can of worms that you can ever imagine, you know? Totally, yeah. All the different things that you can do with that. And so in our first study, we obviously got super excited about this. You know, we talked to Island. We're like, okay, what can we do that would be compelling for computer scientists, but more importantly for psycho- psychologists, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out was, well, there are all of these ideas in psychology about how gender stereotypes, that's our sort of first case study that I'll talk about, how stereotypes and specifically gender stereotypes are pervasive in our culture. And so we kind of intuitively think, okay, the stereotype that women are associated with the home and men are associated with work, that seems pretty widespread across, you know, everything that we think about. But until this new method that Island introduced, we hadn't, we didn't have a good way of quantifying and testing exactly how pervasive they were across all of these different facets of our culture. So was it true that in children's books, there was no association of women with home and men with work? Was it true that in children's TV shows, was that also true in adult TV shows? Was that also true in adult books and so on and so forth? So what we wanted to basically do is use this method to quantify for the first time the actually collective and pervasive nature of something like gender stereotypes. And so we did that. We used 65 million words across seven unique child and adult corpora of texts. And we used this this natural language processing method. And we found that it was all of these different stereotypes that we were looking at, all these different gender stereotypes were shockingly consistent across these different corpora. So even in children's speech, we found a corpus of children basically speaking naturally to their parents or their caregivers. Even in those early years of speaking to their parents, children were expressing gender stereotypes that women are in the home and men are at work, or women are 
good at reading and men are good at math or women are good at arts and men are good at science and so on. All these stereotypes were present in these early, early corpora. And so that, you know, that alone was just so exciting and so shocking to, to sort of quantify that, that collective nature of our, of our social attitudes. Yeah, certainly. I, first of all, thank you for explaining that in a way that made so much sense to me because <laughs> I was looking at the title of the paper that yeah. <laughs> recently published and I was like, I know what each of those words individually mean, but, but I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you what they meant all together. And you've, yeah, you, you put it all together. The package has, has sort of coalesced for me. Perfect. So thank you. That's great. Good, good, good. Um, so, so knowing that we can go back now and we can, yeah. we can sort of start looking in, uh, you know, at these texts, mm-hmm. um, where do we go next? Like what, what is the, for you, what is the question that you're really dying to get the answer here? Yeah. So knowing that we can go back, we can now start to look at the attitudes and stereotypes and representations of cultures that we've never tested before, right? We can look at the Victorian era and see what were the attitudes and stereotypes that they held. And we can actually start to discover some of the things that we might not have known. Because we're using a a quantitative sort of natural language method, these are able to uncover sort of the underlying structure in our language, the underlying biases that might be communicated through these texts. So we can actually, we can do sort of a discovery and sort of like an anthropologist discovery of previous social attitudes and stereotypes. So that's really cool. But even more exciting, if there is a more exciting thing than that, (laughs) is we can trace how those representations from the Victorian era, for instance, have, have actually transformed over the span of these 200, 300 years at a sort of granular level, right? We can see whether there's a spike in these gender stereotypes that occurs following the women's movement um, or a quick drop following a certain kind of social protest that happened you know, in 1910 or something like that. So we can start to see this really exciting granular interweaving between our social attitudes and our stereotypes measured in these really hidden ways through our language and big societal events. And so yeah. to me, this like super exciting potential is seeing that interweaving of our individual minds or individual stereotypes and our broader culture. Yeah, definitely. I, I can entirely appreciate that. It would be really fascinating to be able to see, you know, are these moments in time, um, mm-hmm. you know, having these drastic changes on the way that we are implicitly biased. And I, I think back to like this summer with the, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Exactly. And, you know, could we could we see or, or would you see a change following that? Um, and I think that would be fascinating to, to really dive into. I have two questions, though. One yeah. of them <laughs> is, could you use this sort of approach to modern communication techniques, like um, you know, I think about Twitter being the cesspool that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, could you go back and farm uh, the language that's being used out of Twitter and be able to measure it in the same way that you would from these other texts that you've been using? Yes, <laughs> is the uh-huh. excited answer. <laughs> yes, um, Twitter might be a little bit hard just because there are paywalls in the way. Um, but one thing that my we just hired a, an amazing recent computer science grad. Um, his name's Yoav Rabinovich. And he and I are working on building this corpus of Reddit data from 2007 oh. through to present day. And we're doing it by month. So we're able to, what's really exciting about that too, is I feel like the most common sentence I've said during this podcast is really exciting, but truly, truly. <laughs> it is <exciting>. really exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, well justified. Fair. <laughs> um, so what we're able to do because we have this more contemporary data is we can look at how the language data that we have over time from Reddit matches up with the IAT data that we have over the same time span. And what's what's wonderful about that is it provides a sort of validation of, are we actually, 
if, if these two things match up, if the language biases seen in Reddit match up with the IAT biases seen from you know, actual people sitting down at the computers, then we have more valid evidence and more valid reason to say, okay, great, now we can use this method to trace back in time and look at you know, Victorian era attitudes. Um, so yes, short answer, again, we can. <laughs> Reddit data will be the, the one coming out first. And um, who knows yeah, where from? Can't. Who knows exactly? Yeah, no, I no, I think it's interesting to be able to apply these techniques, and and obviously there's this huge compendium of of exactly. language out there. So why not go at it? Mm -hmm. um, the, the other question that I that's sort of percolating in the back of my mind is related to languages that themselves are gendered, and I think about mm -hmm. you know French being the obvious example here. Um, how do you how do you check for gender biases in a language like that, where it is, where the light, the words themselves are already sometimes at least charged with gender. Yeah, you can, so you basically do the same thing, um, the same method, but it does seem to matter uh, whether or not a language is gendered in terms of the strength of gender stereotypes. So again, another paper that was really inspiring um, by Molly Lewis, it, that was just out, I think, end of last year in PNAS, they looked at the gender biases using this, this natural language processing technique. They used it, the strength of gender bias in 25 different languages. And then they also wanted to see, are those languages that have you know, gendered encoded in the nouns or in the adjectives or something like that, are those more biased than the non-gendered language? And they found that indeed they were. Um, it wasn't a super big effect size, so it doesn't seem to be everything that's going on. There's also cultural stereotypes on top of that sort of structural nature of the language, but it does certainly seem to maybe draw attention to gender in a different way that creates slightly stronger biases, perhaps. Really interesting. This, yeah. this is this is really cool. I, I'm curious because you're you know talking about going back and seeing the differences in these implicit biases as you know we go through our history. Are we just sort of on like the roller coaster that is like implicit bias and we have no control over where we're going or is there something that's like tangibly shifting within the individuals or societies that's making this implicit bias these implicit biases change wow what a cool question um it's so funny because i think i've often thought about this roller coaster of implicit bias that we're on as sort of the societal change you know we're just sort of like attached to society in some way and so we're following what's happening in society but obviously, like there is a conductor of the roller coaster to extend that analogy, maybe a bit too far. And I think like we all have, we can scream really loud and stop the roller coaster and like tell them to stop and all those things. So I think that even as individuals riding a societal roller coaster, riding these shifts of, you know, legislation and social movements and things that seem to emerge out of nowhere, even we as individuals have a role and a responsibility to influence those kinds of societal events. So I think like we've seen the impact of individuals in creating change historically. Mm -hmm. And I think we can continue to see that um, in contemporary times as well. Absolutely. I like that. I like that sentiment a lot. Okay. Uh, one more question before, yeah. uh, I mean, th I say that and we always continue with more questions. So <laughs> I'm not going to say one more There's question. There's so many good questions. Okay. Yeah. No, this is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that being said, I mean, I'm interested in, uh, it's, a top, it's a topic that's really interesting and, and relevant right now. Uh, and has been for a while with when it comes to implicit biases and stereotypes um, and, you know, uh, just prejudice in general, how do you s approach um, improving systematic issues and like, what are the approaches that are 
most inf- like impactful, I guess. Like I think of mm-hmm. affirmative action as an example. What are what are the benefits to, you know, helping or changing people's implicit biases? Can you do it overnight? Can you do mm-hmm. it through like a program, change people's biases, you know? Can we transition that way? Or is it more of like a, you need to make changes individually and then eventually society with all these individuals changing their biases will gather around that and, and, and have the same inform like, you know, same biases. Yeah. I think it's probably the, the fastest change that we may be able to see. And the most durable change perhaps even is that we change the situations first so that we do things like we have certain prescient leaders or something who change legislation, perhaps even before individuals have changed. You know, we use things like affirmative action that, you know, maybe not everyone's on board with, but they change the nature of the representation in our institutions, in our schools, in our you know businesses, all of those things. And with those structural changes, with changes in the world that we can see around us, then individuals kind of catch on. So it's maybe less that like each individual needs to go home and do their homework and do an implicit bias training program and all of these things. And then like eventually they'll come to the realization that they need to change laws. I think it's really like we just need to have a few people who are woke enough to make changes in our society and then the rest of us to follow them. You know, right. we, need to, we need to move towards having situations that are less biased. Yeah to create individuals that are less biased. It seems like we're kind of going back to that idea of, you know, your your exposure and the positive mm-hmm. experiences that you're having, right? If you're having people that are, you know, less privileged and in minority groups uh, that may have biases against them in the greater population, um, you know, if we have positive examples and positive experiences with leaders in those positions, then things might change. Yeah. Just like, you know, having a parent that is anti-gay, having a gay child might change their opinion uh, and their biases. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It really does come full circle of, of you know, our, our talk today of really thinking like if exposure is where our biases are coming from, then exposure to a different world will be the way that we can change our biases as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And with the last four years, I know it's an interesting day to kind of reflect on this yeah. um, <laughs> considering it's inauguration day. I feel like, I feel like over the last four years, it felt like maybe these implicit biases, at least in America, became more explicit, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, at least from a Canadian standpoint. I know you <laughs> experience things very differently than us as, uh, you know, bystanders here. Uh, but yeah. it, it seems like they beca- there was a lot more explicit stereotyping and biases that were in the forefront, at least with a leader that was essentially like allowing it, to, you know, yeah. enforcing that explicit bias, right? Yeah, it's, it's a really important and interesting question and one that I've been grappling with for the past four years and also mm-hmm. particularly so for the past few weeks because and you're some of the first people to know this we finally have so in our original paper that i talked about at the beginning of sort of tracing implicit biases from the early 2000s all the way through to now we we actually stopped in 2016 and we just provided forecasts and we said based on the trends that have happened in the past these are the trends that should continue from 2016 through to 2020. of course this was done before we knew that the shit was gonna hit the fan you know like this was all done before then And what's particularly exciting is we ended 2020, as everyone knows, finally, um, and we finally have that data to to test. And so I've just finished cleaning and preparing it. And what was so shocking to me is that we followed the trends that we set for the past for, you know, 10 years, the past four years have continued to move towards neutrality. So with some exceptions, you know, we we, we have age biases seem to be showing something slightly different, but really at the broadest level, the forecasts were accurate. Like we were shockingly close. 
And so how can that be? How can we have something that continues to show that our explicit biases are decreasing, our implicit biases have continued to decrease, even in the midst of a Trump, you know, even in the midst of all of this endorsement of going, go out and be prejudiced in society. Despite that, we seem to be sh showing continued change. I think the only way to think about how we might reconcile those two things is perhaps our perceptions of things just getting so much worse uh, over the past four years are a little bit distorted. Just like we you know, have a distorted perception of politics and we only pay attention to those people who are really like extreme in their political orientation, and we don't really recognize that the vast majority of people have more moderate views on politics, we might also just be seeing those cases where like they are extreme and horrific events that are occurring in society. Mm -hmm. And yet despite that, perhaps the majority of society, perhaps even because of that, those extreme events that are kind of becoming outliers in a sense, are pushing the rest of us to say, we need to bond together as the majority of society and actually continue to do the difficult work to change our society for the better, even in the face of these really horrific events. Yeah. So it yeah. could be, you know, they could be reconciled. I think I need to keep thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. But I definitely, I don't think it's as simple a story as everything has legitimately got worse everywhere for everyone. I think it might be a little bit more perhaps hopeful and also informative to think about the nuance between what we're seeing and what we're, you know, as a society and as individuals. Yeah, sure. I think yeah. with with the internet and with globalization and, and yeah. the news cycle and the way that things are presented to us through the media, I think it's easy to to get to think that way. And that's, you know, that's probably what a lot of people are feeling that kind of fatigue, but also it's a great point. I think, you know, seeing this change and seeing how bad things can be, at least it's in the open now yeah. where it was ignored or previously, you know, brushed aside. Yeah. And I think that that could be, as you, as you so eloquently put it, like, I think that could be a really positive thing in the end. And, and you can see, that, and that's awesome that we're seeing in your work, mm -hmm. these, actual changes you know the, the implicit biases aren't getting worse you know yeah. they're actually <laughs> becoming more neutral this is actually really good and i think yeah. that yeah looking at the news is not a good representation uh or these right. extremist groups looking looking at those it won't help us at all <laughs> right right it only just continues the doom scrolling and continues the despair absolutely which we have become very accustomed to these yes. days it seems um <laughs> yeah. tessa just before we kind of wrap up here because i know it's yeah. getting late and you've got more editing to do and, and i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure more importantly celebrating procrastinate yeah <laughs> <laughs> celebrating certainly then um sure sure uh you know obviously we're appreciative of everything that you've shared with us today. I've found this episode to be incredibly enlightening. Um, how do people, how, how might somebody get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your work or, or even just kind of follow along with the, the amazing research that you're doing? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I should also say this has been such a blast. It's been really, really fun to talk to you both. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can go to my website. Um, it's Tessa ES, which is my middle, middle initials, charlesworth.wordpress.com. Uh, and then you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm trying to remember my Twitter handle because I never tweet at myself. Um, I think it's at Tess, T-E-S, Charlesworth. Um, the good news, we'll have it all on the bio, on your bio page <laughs> on our website. So it, for, your, for your help, Tessa, it's perfect. at Tess Charlesworth. Oh, that is great. Okay, great, great. <laughs> Some sort of implicit knowledge came in there. Um, yeah, so those would be the, the two best ways to sort of follow, follow the work, um, send me an email, but... Yeah, definitely get in touch if you're interested. I'm always happy to nerd out about psychology or answer questions about implicit bias. What an awesome conversation to have uh, on inauguration day and during these times. It's, it's really inspiring to hear. 
yeah, no, it was, as I said, it's been such a blast. And yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing to bring science to the public. I love it. <laughs> Our absolute pleasure. Uh, anybody who's listening along, they can follow BrainBuzz on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe to our newsletter, brainbuzzpod.com, and join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at brainbuzzpod. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. cheers.